Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. Before we get to today's story, I wanted to read an email I got a few days ago about the last episode, the Stephanie episode. Here it goes. Hi, Craig. I want to thank you for allowing Stephanie to share her moving personal account of being suspected of murder and how her feelings of mistrust, fear, and cynicism about others grew, haunting her years after the initial investigation occurred. She eloquently described how the experience of being wrongly accused led her to believe that her life didn't matter as the police continued to corner and question her without evidence. It was painful and infuriating to consider her powerlessness in contrast to the benefit of the doubt given to the police. It was also moving to hear about her path towards healing and acceptance and integration. Now, maybe I'm being presumptuous, but in listening to the podcast, I assumed that Stephanie was white, and that is true, Stephanie is white, although her race was not mentioned. As I listened to Stephanie, I thought about how she was articulating nuanced emotional terrain that is, unfortunately, well-known and well-traveled by so many black and brown people in this country. What Stephanie went through was horrific and scarring, but what stood out to me the most about the story was the fact that this happened to a young, middle-class white woman. I'm white, but I had a diverse group of friends growing up, and I saw my black and brown friends get harassed for things that I got away with, or for nothing, on more than one occasion. I remember taking a friend to my corner store in seventh grade. She was followed around aggressively by a suspicious shopkeeper. I was outraged. My friend was black. She just shrugged. So many of the black and brown people I grew up with had routine experiences of being falsely accused by the police and others. So many of my black and brown peers never had the benefit of being surprised by injustice the way that I was. The expectation of not being treated fairly was something I learned about from them. I'm so sorry for what Stephanie went through. I also see her sharing of her story as an opportunity to create more empathy for others who might have a different skin color and live in different neighborhoods, but understand her pain. Maybe it's too late, but I'm hoping something about race as it pertains to Stephanie's story could be mentioned on your podcast. Here we go. It's being mentioned. Thank you again for leading these important conversations. And this is from Susanna in Berkeley. Thank you so much for that note. Um, Right after I got the email, I sent it to Chris and then talked to him a couple days ago. And I said, hey, I think we should read this on the podcast. What do you think? He said, oh, definitely. And then Chris said something really interesting. He said, you know, we hear stories from our own perspectives, shaped by what we've each been through. And this is so true, because as we were producing Stephanie's story, I actually never even thought about her race. And I think that's almost surely because my backstory is so different from that of Susanna. One goal we have with our stories on Back from the Abyss is that they be specific enough to accurately and honestly share what the storyteller experienced, while also being universal enough that every listener can find something powerful to connect to, whether they have had a similar experience or not. Okay, let's move to today's story. When I first meet a patient, I'm particularly interested in how early in their life their suffering began. As I discussed in the episode, Why Psychiatric Illness Strikes Young, most patients who are going to develop serious psychiatric illness begin to have symptoms in, say, mid to late adolescence. When a patient tells me that they don't ever remember feeling happy or safe, I know that we are in for a major treatment challenge. For this kind of suffering often signals early attachment trauma, whether neglect or abuse or both. And this will almost surely play out in our treatment relationship in predictably disruptive and painful ways. The magic of psychotherapy is that it brings forth transference, the patient's most important informative relationships 
typically with mom and or dad, these relationships are unconsciously reenacted in the therapy room. And this transference necessarily creates countertransference, the therapist's unconscious reactions to the transference. Alexandria came to me originally due to her severe harm OCD. But over time, it became clear to me and eventually to her that she was increasingly and unconsciously trying to put me in the role of the abandoner, the critic, the emotional abuser. This process is called projective identification. And as you'll hear, it played out very dramatically between us and was a major factor in her plans to die. This episode also highlights the complexities of suicidality. One of my major treatment challenges with Alexandria has been to help her tease out, identify, and become an expert in the many facets of her suicidality. Sometimes her death wish was fueled by her mood disorder, sometimes by her OCD, other times by her early childhood trauma or her adolescent sexual trauma, or by anger or frustration or just plain overwhelming fatigue. Finally, I think this episode highlights the difficult but ultimately life-changing process of repairing empathic failures. Much like life, we don't learn nearly as much in therapy when it's going well. The deep learning and change comes from when things go off the rails, when the therapeutic relationship starts to careen into the transferential abyss, and then, and then the therapist mindfully and patiently stays with the process and gently guides the patient back onto the path, the path of self-compassion, of mindful self-analysis, of realizing that they can do life and relationships differently. All dead people should know this. They're going to matter even if they think they won't, and even if they don't want to. Mm. That was from uh, your book. Your favorite book. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that book. Uh, Bravey is written by Alexi Pappas, who is an Olympic runner. Uh, she talks a lot about mental health because her mom died by suicide. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a good introduction to today's talk. You and I have been talking about this for months, and um, I know we've both been really excited to do it, and we're finally sitting down to talk about your story and our treatment relationship and, and not, not just the hard things you've been through, but the hard things that we've been through together. And, uh, and also this episode comes after we did a couple of DBT episodes. And I think DBT has been an important part of your journey. So why don't we start with, um, why don't we go back to June, 2020, you and I met during the pandemic. Let's see, June, 8th, 2020, I actually have your eval here, but what do you remember about why you came to me, why you were referred? What do you remember about our, our first meeting? Um, I had recently gone through what I now know as an OCD episode where I was terrified that I would kill my husband in my sleep and I would keep seeing images of that. And so as a result, I checked myself into Mountain Crest and um, they said that I was going through an episode of psychosis, which was also an OCD fear I had. And after leaving and not feeling any better, in fact, feeling worse, uh, the doctor I had at the time recommended that I come see you. When I did, you were like, 
textbook OCD. Mm -hmm. Let me read from my original note. So this is June 8th, 2020. Uh, 24-year-old single Hispanic female here alone today. Quote, I'd been doing really well up until about May 14th. Then I started having these terrible thoughts of killing my husband, of stabbing him and killing my dad. It got so bad, I went to the hospital. There they thought I was having psychotic symptoms, but I've been doing research. I think it's harm OCD, end of quote. We reviewed the Yale Brown Obsessive Compulsive Scale. She has a long history of various lifelong OCD symptoms, including fear of hitting someone with her car, scrupulosity themes, illness fears, though she hadn't had the violent intrusive images until last month. Prior to onset of harm OCD, her main issue was trauma slash PTSD. Both parents were emotionally and verbally abusive, as well as neglectful. She was sexually abused by a former boyfriend for 18 months, also raped by an acquaintance during adolescence, and nearly drowned in a car wreck in a lake. Therapy for the last five years, two inpatient stays, one for restrictive type eating disorder, history of panic attacks with trauma triggers, clear history of depressive episodes outside of her pervasive PTSD, history of alcohol and opioid use in college, Trazodone overdose prior to first inpatient stay. What is it like to hear that? It's been what two and a half years since we met, and uh, I don't, I don't know that I've gone back and read my eval to you. I don't think it feels any different in terms of like it's just, it's just words saying exactly what I have and struggle with. Mm. I do think it's fascinating though to hear like depressive episodes outside of PTSD because I think like going from like wondering if it was borderline personality disorder or all these other things I feel like now it can also it feels like it's more clear that it may be linked as well to bipolar Mm -hmm. what do you remember if anything about our early sessions Um, I mean one of the big themes in our work has been trust not surprising because you have um, you know, family of origin, parental abuse issues. And at least my memory of many of our early sessions and actually into, well, up until maybe last year, <laughs> tr- trust has, has been huge. And what do you remember about how we built trust or didn't in those early sessions? I was thinking about this and I recognize that Clearly, I didn't trust you very much because I don't remember a lot of the majority of our sessions, which tells me I likely dissociated. But I do think that my trust in you started to arise when we started doing exposure therapy. I mean, you had me take a knife and put it to your back or something like that. Mm. And I think knowing that you trusted me that much helped me to trust you. Mm-hmm. And also to be able to tell you the fears that I was having and not have you be like, oh, God, she's going to kill someone. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember when we were starting to talk about exposure therapy and, you know, you, like so many people with harm OCD, ha- have this knife thing. Like, it's really common with harm mm-hmm. OCD that people feel like they're going to lose control, grab a knife and either plunge it in someone or plunge it in themselves. So we did some in vivo knife exposure where I brought in big knives and I would have you hold them at me and even to my back. You had that special knife that you would keep on the shelf. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like serrated. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, that's interesting because I've never actually asked you this, but that that was a real turning point in trust that I was so confident that you had harm OCD that I actually could have you hold a big knife in front of me. You even laid on the floor and like pulled the knife towards you <laughs> in my hands. <laughs> I take this exposure therapy seriously. I'm not messing around. Best thing that ever happened to yeah, me. Yeah, I know. As we learned in season one from the OCD episode, I, I can sometimes push exposure a little <laughs> too far. <laughs> and what about trust too, that you, that you could trust me to be there for you, you know, and not hurt you, not abandon you, not be cruel. Because um, I think that's a different kind of trust. Like one, one is sort of trusting the diagnosis, trusting that, you know, I have so much trust in you that you're not going to hurt me that I would actually put a knife in your hands. But, but what about this sort of the trust issues that come out of trauma? And because so much of what you, know, you do in therapy is trying to build a, an alliance of, of connection and trust, which trauma can so destroy that. That has been a huge work in progress. And I don't think that I've felt a significant amount of trust with that until like the last six months probably. And I think that partially is also a result of me putting in the effort to create that mutual trust and respect. But I think there were enough things that were said on both sides that were outrageously hurtful. And I feel like when I put in my part of going to DBT and understanding how to manage my emotions when the big ones would come up and I would just react on them right away and act on them. I don't think until I started doing that did I start feeling like a sense of safety and security in our relationship in terms of not being spoken to poorly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to come back to that a little later in our talk today about some of those really hard things that we went through together. we might backtrack a little bit and explore suicidality in general and also how that's been a feature in your life because you know in our two and a half year treatment course that's been front and center theme um, suicidality driven by all sorts of things but maybe you could say a little bit about how suicidality first appeared in your life and then how it evolved over time you're probably going to cut this out, but there's a part of me that's like, oh, yeah, that's my baby. <laughs> Why would I cut that out? I don't know. <laughs> it, it kind of is your baby. I know. Yeah, okay. Fostered and nurtured I it for know. so long. In the mummy wrap, the and suicidality baby. That you now I'm like, you're grown around. and you must go off on your own. Yeah. Oh, you change all the time, <laughs> but you're always there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's true because I think that's a great metaphor because... In so many ways, your suicidality has been your longtime companion, your source of kind of go-to comfort, mm -hmm. the place where you always have it there. Mm -hmm. It's kind of your ace in the hole. Yeah. 
I'm not remembering what the original yeah. question was. So when did this start? I mean, are we, hmm. I mean, does this come out of teenage years? Or what are your earliest memories of starting to feel like you wanted to die? And then, you know, what's your memory of how that changed over time? I think it's interesting because I feel like suicidality isn't always the initial thought of, okay, I want to kill myself. I feel like it like starts to grow. So I feel like looking back on my childhood, there were moments where I was like eight years old and I, I remember distinctly sitting in my bedroom and looking out my window and watching the sunset and just feeling this like very visceral, aching feeling of dread. And that feeling is very similar to what I feel when I feel suicidal in the present day. So it makes me curious about like how that's continued to grow. Um, but I feel like then the actual thoughts of wanting to end my life or wanting to escape or wanting to matter in some way started probably around the age of 14. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Through your teenage years, was it largely ideation or did you start to move towards, you know, plan or even attempting? Uh, when I was 14, there was one night that my family and I were driving somewhere. I don't know where my sister was in the car and I saw a semi coming and I was like, here we go. And I opened the door and went to jump out and my dad grabbed my legs and my sister saw the whole thing. So I remember that very, very distinctly. Was that impulsive? Yeah, I think it, like there was, there were precipitating events and there was a lot of anger and tension in the car. And I think it was one, like I need to leave Mm -hmm. and two, just like it doesn't matter if I leave. And so, yeah. Yeah. Was that a more common kind of theme or driver of suicidality in teenage years that you wanted out, needed to get away? Because I know things were really rough family-wise. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think it was so much of like feeling like a burden or anything like that, but more so I just have to escape this one way or another. And then how, if at all, has OCD and or body dysmorphia um, kind of intermixed with suicidality because, you know, at the same time that you're growing up with a lot of parent-child trauma and other traumas, sexual traumas, then you're also developing OCD, body dysmorphia, and, you know, those are often powerful drivers of suicidality as well, but I'm curious for you, Mm -hmm. how do those play in the mix? I feel like as far as body dysmorphia, um, coincides with my eating disorder and I remember there being a time where it was more so I want to be this particular way I want to look this particular way and if that means that I'm going to die as a result I might as well and then as far as OCD is concerned it was that was more related to I should kill myself because if I don't, someone's going to get hurt. And mm-hmm. so that, that's oh, interesting. Trigger. So 
the harm OCD in particular mm-hmm. was so frightening. You thought, I, I need to sort of preemptively kill myself because I'm going to lose control and kill someone else. Yeah, that's why I went to Mountain Crest. Mm. What if, you know, if you had to summarize over the last you know, decade or two, the main drivers of suicidality for you? I'm guessing they've you know, changed, but mm. what have been the top one or two things that have driven that for you? Because I think you and I have talked about this a lot, that I think people who don't understand suicidality don't realize that it's very complicated. I think like the lay public can think, oh, that just means you want to die or you want out, but or you're depressed. You know, But there's so many things. It's such a rich tapestry of things mm-hmm. that can drive that urge to want to die. What about for you? I feel like I'm so grateful that I have the words for it now. I feel like had you asked me this question like six months ago, I wouldn't have known what to say. I think not having an understanding of my emotions and then not being able to control my reaction to them and moving forward that way made it really challenging for me to engage in relationships appropriately And so I think one of the biggest factors in wanting to die was having those really big emotions, getting really scared, being worried that someone was going to leave or they were too much, and then not getting the response I wanted. But of course, being in an emotional mind state, I'm not going to get that response, feeling at that point like a burden and that I should just let go so I don't have to continue placing that on other people. Mm -hmm. How and when did your suicidality become this sort of warm go-to companion? Because it's sounding sounding like it was not necessarily like that in adolescence Mm -hmm. that developed over time. Yeah, I think so. I think when I moved to Colorado, uh, so 2015, because when I first moved here, I didn't really have any friends. I didn't have much financial resources. Uh, And I think from there, it just started to become something that I always knew would be there if I lost everything else. And that lasted for quite some time. Mm -hmm. What's been the relationship for you between self-harm and suicidality, if any? Like, are are those connected or are those separate issues? Uh, I think connected, always. Uh, But in different ways. I think that's changed over time. I would say most recently... Self-harm has often just been a mechanism to prevent me from killing myself. Uh, So in moments where I've had an attempt and then really don't want to again because of people I care about or otherwise, I self-harm as a way of getting that type of release or just that feeling of like, okay, okay, I could go, I could, this could be done, but I'm going to try. So this will be perfect. And then, of course, sometimes wishing that that resulted in death mm-hmm. and also other times getting very close to mm-hmm. resulting in death. Often cutting. Yeah. Yeah. So for yeah. you, a lot of times, self-harm, particularly cutting, was kind of a sort of self-harm as harm reduction strategy. <laughs> yeah. If I cut myself this deeply, then... That will help me not kill myself. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a common. But again, I think you know, self-harm like suicidality can be driven by 101 different things. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes people are punishing themselves or 
they're looking for the scars or they're mm-hmm. dissociated and want to self-harm to sort of bring themselves back into that kind of yeah. the, the living. Yeah, but for mm-hmm. you more as a attempt to stay alive. Yep. Yeah. came to me and it's interesting to look back at my initial eval you know my my impression was 24 year old with complex ptsd and a recent severe exacerbation of ocd so two, two diagnoses <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good and i thought oh yeah this this is this is not going to be too hard uh, and in, the, in the past medical history i put asthma endometriosis but let me just read i'm going to read the medical list what's in my electronic medical record right now okay <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and I got your approval for this. Um, obsessive compulsive disorder, body dysmorphic disorder, uh, complex PTSD, borderline personality disorder, gastroparesis, celiac disease, Hashimoto's, um, ADHD, asthma, endometriosis. Did I hit it all? Bipolar. Bipolar disorder, right? That was a. That's kind of a yeah, big one. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I should put that on. The, I should put that on the problem list. <laughs> I wonder if we might explore this. This is such a complicated and really difficult issue. I think both for you personally and for psychiatry in general, mm-hmm. the fact that you can so easily accumulate a whole bunch of diagnoses and you have a number of psychiatric diagnoses and medical diagnoses, but mm-hmm. I wonder if we might just explore what it's been like your journey, you know, coming to me with, um, you know, a couple of serious psychiatric diagnoses, a couple of medical diagnoses. And then in the two and a half years we've worked <laughs> together, like things have accumulated. And I think not because you and I want it, you know, if anything, mm-hmm. I think of myself as a, as a lumper, not a splitter. Like mm-hmm. I'm always trying to find like just the one Mm-hmm. your diagnosis that explains the most things i mm-hmm. hate having a long diagnosis mm-hmm. list it, it feels like a kind of a failure as a doctor so yeah how dare you uh, no, how, dare, how dare we create this long <laughs> list so yeah tell me what, what that journey's been like for you and specific challenges for you i feel like with the psychiatric diagnoses it's been a journey to acceptance like with borderline personality disorder I still find myself cringing when I hear that because I think it carries a lot of stigma yeah it's often used in a very pejorative way yeah which I feel like to me understanding it now it really just has to do with like pretty much why you go to dbt I'm just Mm -hmm. like I have to learn to deal with my emotions in a productive way yeah or why you have and other people who've held that diagnosis Mm -hmm. why Dealing with life on life's terms is so effing painful. Yeah. It's just like day to day, just trying to do life, mm-hmm. trying to be a person on a planet with 8 billion people is hard enough. But if you have borderline personality traits or structure, like it makes it a million times harder. Yeah. That can bounce back and forth though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we've seen that with you. I think you, your borderline traits when you're doing better, meaning like when your mood disorder is better managed mm-hmm. and you are using your DBT skills and you're, you're just, you know, in a healthier place and you're running and working, like 
we don't see much of that. I think that's mm-hmm. one of the things people don't realize is that, you know, we all, when we are ill, our worst personality stuff comes out, all of us. Mm-hmm. We regress, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the case with you too. When you've been struggling with all these other diagnoses, surprise, surprise, the borderline stuff gets worse. But even your, as I read your diagnosis list, I thought, I actually cringed to like borderline personality disorder. I thought, do you have that today? You know, I don't think you do. Yeah. I think I would say more accurately, you, again, you move to that borderline personality organization when you're under great stress and or your other mm-hmm. medical or psychiatric issues are acting out. Yeah. As far as the other thing. Sorry, that was a, that was a long, <laughs> that was my fault. I asked you a question. That was a long monologue. I apologize. <laughs> but let's come back to the journey of, you know, in the two and a half years we've been working together, we've been progressively adding more and more, you know, significant mm-hmm. medical and psychiatric diagnoses to what you're already trying to handle. Yeah. I feel like, as I said, the psychiatric diagnoses have been just a pathway towards acceptance and learning to accept that those exist. I don't really think that bothers me at all. I just think that it's hard to tell other people, but I also don't think I owe that to other people. I think that the bipolar component has been life-saving in understanding medications that might be useful as far as physical illnesses. I think that I... It's taken so long to even get one because of the great amount of medical neglect I experienced as a kid. And so I never really thought it was necessary to go to the doctor because I was not, I mean, I broke my finger and I broke my leg and no one really cared to take me to the doctor. I was told I was fine. And so now being in a place where people are like, that is really not normal. And then finally being like, okay, fine, I'll go. And now that I'm going, they're like, oh my God, X, Y, and Z are all wrong with you. (laughs) And so it's more like they just, they tested one thing and happened to find all these other things at the same time. Mm -hmm. It's actually really great because I don't feel too horrible (laughs) anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes. (laughs) Because you've been able to make, you know, lifestyle changes to address celiac and, you know, you're on thyroid meds and you're Mm -hmm. doing things to really address the medical problems. Mm -hmm. But let's come back to the bipolar thing for a sec, because, you know, so often I think borderline um, symptoms, traits, and uh, bipolar get mixed up. So I miss that. You know, it was, it wasn't until you were put on lithium, right? Mm -hmm. When you were in Texas. Yep. So things have been markedly better for you since we added that diagnosis. And I think, I think what they came out of it sort of relates back to the discussion we're having a few minutes ago. You know, one of the things I would always ask you when you would reach out to me suicidal, which was a lot, I would say, you know, is this trauma driven? Is this OCD or Mm -hmm. BDD driven? Is this anger driven or vengeance driven or depression driven? And it became, you actually, I thought you would get, you got quite good at being able to tease that out. But, but more, my memory is, there were a number of times where you're like, this is like depression driven, I think. And yeah. You know, it's interesting to read my initial eval. I said here in the initial eval, quote, clear history of depressive episodes outside of her PTSD. Mm-hmm. Then you get put on lithium. Then we start doing ketamine treatments, which in general, ketamine makes borderline worse, but it, it's a, you know, amazing 
A plus treatment for bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, so it sounds like in some ways, you know, that's both a heavy diagnosis, but that's also been kind of validating and a relief. The best thing to ever happened to me. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I'm doing so much better. You are, it's so true. <laughs> like I, that is one thing I don't hold any like shame about or stigma about because if that didn't happen and that wasn't something I had mentioned to my doctors in the hospital, I, I wouldn't, I don't know that I would be doing this well. Mm-hmm. So where are you now with having this big di- diagnosis list? You know, are you, where are you in terms of, you know, acceptance, relief, resentment, you know, anger, <laughs> um, hopelessness or despair? I mean, mm. It's, I think if we, you know, if we walked up to someone on the street and said, hey, guess what? We're going to wave a magic wand and here's your diagnosis list. I think, in my, I think most people think you couldn't possibly have any kind of happy or good life with that kind of diagnosis list. With my diagnosis? Yeah. Oh. I, th- I think you're... They're so wrong. <laughs> no, no I, no, I totally agree. I think you're, you're such an amazing... Uh, testament to we are not our diagnoses yeah you know again if i did a case conference and i said okay here's ac blah blah blah, and here's a diagnosis list i think people in the audience would be like whoa this is like this person is probably suffering 24 7 but i was you were i mean that's not wrong i didn't think that i would feel this way ever hence the let's die type thing What's been the role of meds in your treatment journey? Um, you came to me on Wellbutrin, lorazepam. Uh, actually, that was it. A little bit of lithyronine. Yeah, I didn't have much. Yeah, so you're on barely any medication. And yeah. now you're on like five psych meds. Is yeah. That right? Yeah. Well, fuck Wellbutrin. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah, why don't, and why don't we speak more to your uh, course of medications with me over the mm-hmm. last two and a half years and how they've helped, not helped, how you have sort of psychologically, kind of existentially dealt with the fact that seeming like to do well, you need to be on a small handful yeah. of meds. To address that last part, I think it's really hard because there's also so much stigma around medications. And so sometimes I fall like I feel like there are two things that I kind of hear when people talk about medications one if you're on a lot of medications you must be crazy and then two big pharma blah 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 medications are bullshit mm-hmm. and I think those are both wrong and clearly your psychiatrist only wants to give you pills yeah I could see like obviously. if someone came to your house like <laughs> And they looked at all your medicine bo- mm-hmm. bottles. He cock, he cock, he cock. He. Mm-hmm. They're thinking like, oh, great. She's got this pill-pushing doc. She's just like, <laughs> yeah. just wants to, yeah, take all these pills and you're going to be healed. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's not true. <laughs> uh, in fact, you've tried to keep me on the least amount of meds mm-hmm. possible. I think once my Lexapro started kicking in, 
for OCD. That was incredible. And I know we tried a couple medications. I think it was risperidone and olanzapine at first. And risperidone was great. Olanzapine was horrible. And ended up not needing those. We also continued with lorazepam, which has been really helpful with panic attacks and sleep. And then, of course, there's the lamotrigine and lithium, which I feel like... And lithium I, was a total game changer. Yeah. So you, when you were I hospitalized just, in Texas, they started you in lithium. Yeah. I, I remember being a little surprised when you told me that. And then when you came back from Texas and I saw, oh my gosh. Yeah. Like it's night and day. Yeah. Yeah. Because we started lamotrigine few months before that I want to say it was good but it wasn't I was still very suicidal Mm -hmm. and then yeah going to Texas and getting started on lithium I feel like yeah things just flipped a switch yeah what specifically do you think lithium did in terms of the way you think or feel or experience the world dialed down suicidality and when I say that I mean big emotions come up and I just don't really think, I don't think of it. I don't think of trying to kill myself. Like that's not the first thing that comes up. Yes, I still get a little bit of panic, but I don't just instantly want to die. Mm-hmm. And that's drastically different for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about your other meds? What specific psychiatric symptoms, the thoughts or feelings or ways of experiencing the world have, have your meds helped with? Um, with Lexapro, I don't, I'll still have intrusive thoughts, but they just don't seem that important. So I'll still have that, like I'm driving my car and I'm pretty sure I just hit someone feeling, but it doesn't cause me to drive in circles for like an hour trying to figure out if I did. And then of course there's exposure therapy that helps with that. But I think it definitely, Ooh, here's a good way to put it. It made it easier for me to start engaging in exposure therapy. So have that thought. That's not so debilitating that I can't move off the couch. The thought is a little bit muted so I can engage in something that will challenge it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Or, and, then, and then you're on methylphenidate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which is Concerta or near the yeah. extended release version of Ritalin. Yeah, that one, that's great. It's really, really, really hard for me to have like a list of things to do and figure out how to do them, how to get them done. And so I'll end up just doing like little pieces of each thing and then I'm overwhelmed and I can't figure anything else out. I feel like since I've been taking methylphenidate, it's a little easier to make a list and then be like, okay, this one I should probably do first and then this one i just it doesn't feel as overwhelming i guess mm-hmm. so you know when i think of meds you know and i think back like what could i have done differently uh, you know there's three basically three meds that have been pretty strongly shown to dial down suicidality lithium clozapine ketamine and uh i think i didn't try lithium with you in the early you know year or two because I was pretty convinced that your suicidality was largely out of trauma and or borderline stuff, mm-hmm. which again, lithium can help a little bit, but usually that lithium helps the most with suicidality that comes out of surprise, surprise, bipolar depression or unipolar depression. Mm-hmm. Although then when I look back and I beat up on myself a little bit, I think, wait, you presented with um, severe OCD 
and a recurrent depression that seemed like it occurred outside of PTSD. And now we know that, and I've talked about this on the podcast, that OCD and bipolar have huge overlap. Oh. Yeah. And so, again, I'm always trying to look back and think, like, what could I have done differently? And I'm thinking, like, oh, when I met you, I should have thought, (laughs) I should have thought, you know, bipolar till proven otherwise, given your history of depression and the severe OCD. So Mm -hmm. I apologize for that. Meh. You can put that on the comment card. I have a lot to apologize for, too, so we, we kind of even out. Maybe we can end with confessions of all our apologies. Actually, we are probably going to kind of do some of that. This might be a good time just to transition to what have been the most pivotal times in our treatment relationship. You know, and that could be positive or negative. Like when you look back and think, what were the crux moves that were, yeah, that were very healing and or difficult that we were able to heal from? And maybe you could throw out a few and then I may add a couple. Or you could throw out a few (laughs) first. I, I I want you to start. I have, the first one's bad. I almost died on your couch. So that wasn't good. Mm. Yeah, you took a essentially fatal overdose of Wellbutrin just before our session and you came to my couch and curled up and started going unconscious. And uh, it took me three or four minutes to realize, oh, that's right, then I got a text from you that you'd sent earlier that said, I took, you know, thousands of milligrams of Wellbutrin and, and, uh, like goodbye. Mm-hmm. And then you were on my couch starting to, starting to go away. I didn't mean to laugh. I just was like, I don't know what to say. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, right. I mean, when we talk about all the things you and I've been through, which is a ton, yet mm-hmm. this one is front and center because mm-hmm. you, uh, you know, we called the rescue squad and you had your service dog and we had to pry the service dog away from you. And then you were taken away in the ambulance and nearly died. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, you were my first appointment of the day. So I had a whole day's worth of patients to see and I was crying and other people in the office were crying and yeah, it, uh, how was that from your end? I mean, for me, like, I care about you a ton. We've spent so many hours together. I mean, we really, mm-hmm. gosh, you and I have worked so hard for so long together. And yet it almost all ended that day. Are you asking how that specific experience is? Yeah, I wonder what, again, from your side, again, you and I have processed a ton in our work together. But yeah, where are you today? Like, what? how do you understand why you decided to overdose and come into my office and then how do you think that whole experience and how we dealt with it, you know, either moved our treatment relationship forward or, or didn't? I don't know how to react and not laugh because uh, it's hard. Mm-hmm. I just remember feeling so given up on by so many people around me, like my closest friends, 
my partner, I just didn't, I did not feel that anyone would care. And that included you. I didn't think it would be a big deal to you. Like, I, I don't know why. I just didn't, I didn't think that that would be something that would have a significant impact on you. The only thing I was thinking about was myself. And I wanted to get myself out of the picture so that everyone else could just like stop. It's like a, having a french fry in your pocket that just never gets out of your pocket. You just carry around this french fry because it's stuck there. I don't know why that's my analogy, but it is. Um, I felt like that french fry that you couldn't get rid of. And so... Um, you were the french fry in my pocket. I was a french fry in your pocket. <laughs> but you didn't want me there. I was stuck. Yeah. I just felt like this thing that nobody wanted like gum stuck in your hair or something like that and so I was like I need to leave so I'm not just this annoying thing that's sticking around and at the same time I was trying to care for myself and doing that because it felt like what I was doing was for everyone else and so the person that I thought of that I knew I could trust to care about me and that I cared about a lot happened to be you and I didn't want to die alone Mm -hmm. so I didn't I didn't do it out of spite or anger I just I didn't want to die alone and I didn't I didn't think it would impact you that much Mm -hmm. yeah I remember as the ambulance was taking you away I was thinking why in my office. And so I was trying to think, okay, the compassionate, connected, loving part of me thought she felt safe with me. And, you know, this was actually a vote of sort of affirmation of what we'd been through together. And then I was thinking, did she do this out of anger or vengeance? Like, because, you know, we've hurt each other for sure. Like, it's closely as we've worked together through such hard stuff, you know, it gets inevitable that I was going to say and do hurtful things, which I've definitely done. Then I'm thinking like, is this the payback? I'm thinking, is this, is she trying to make a point? And it also, um, I had a suicide years ago where a woman, she made a suicide video. Um, she filmed it and then she sent it to me and to four other people. And it, w- it was horrific. And uh, so I was thinking back to that, like, is that kind of like this? Like, is mm-hmm. this sort of like, is this her like FU world? Mm-hmm. FU? And then, but I really held, as the ambulance drove away, I just held on to like, I don't think so. I, I want to believe that this actually was Alexandria saying like, no, like you are the person that I trust. And mm-hmm. when I leave this world, I, I want to be on your couch in your office. I believe I left letters, but I don't think you read yours. I think you gave it back to me. Oh, no, I read it. You did? Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I feel it. like I tried to explain it. Yeah, but I read it later. Yeah. Yeah. How premeditated was that? Oh, very much so. Like weeks? Like week, months. Oh, months ahead. Yeah. That you were going to gather enough medication and then yeah. die in my office. I waited for a couple refills. Because, mm, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. you know, so many suicide attempts are impulsive. And, yeah, this one, you know, as you and I explored, was very planned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you remember in the aftermath of that in terms of our treatment relationship? You know, what maybe shifted for the worse or the harder or what maybe shifted for the better or from, from your end, did anything change? 
You were upset. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Understandably so. I feel like it, I mean, I feel like it wasn't until 2022 that you started to, like, get over it a bit. Um, when you say upset, how did you experience me? Not, like, angry or, like, punishing. More just, like, like heartbroken. Kind of, like, I don't know. I don't yeah. know how to compare it It was, like, yeah, it was a... I experienced as a heartbrokenness or like a, like a punch in the gut. Like a betrayal. Like a betrayal. Yeah. Like a, this all the air let out of me. Yeah. 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 And I didn't, I don't think I knew until late last year that you were still battling that a bit. You brought it up. Mm-hmm. And I feel like every time that came up, I recognized that that was totally warranted and it was also outrageously painful for me to know that I'd hurt you that bad and to know that there's nothing I could do to take that back. Mm-hmm. No, it's interesting, right? You, there's nothing you could do to take it back, but there's so much you could do to heal it, which is what, again, your purpose in therapy is not to heal me. <laughs> but I think by you and I trying to heal that and, and really work through it and understand it, that, that has been healing. I think, I won't speak for you, it's been healing for me, mm-hmm. which ultimately is as the person who's trying to help you. I just feel like it's, it's been much, it's just been much easier to help you knowing and, and really not just believing in my mind, but in my heart that, you did that out of really affirmation and, you know, and trust with me. Yeah. Like it, it, in some ways, like, you know, it was, uh, now I, I don't experience it with any anger or resentment or like a gut punch or anything. It's more like, Oh, I understand it. It makes sense. And I'm so, so relieved that you lived. Yeah. I feel like that's very special. I just, I think you and I have talked about this before of, of all the things that like have happened during our relationship, there are quite a few practitioners that would not continue this relationship or even like, I don't know how many people in just friendships would continue a relationship like that. So to have you being willing to take the time to see it that way because this was two years ago yeah it was 2021 right yeah so two years ago ish yeah it's taken time but for you to be willing to hold those feelings while also holding space for me i think is a huge gift Mm. yeah i'm really glad that we both stuck in there after that didn't change after that attempt because I remember thinking okay that's got to be it (laughs) like I think 
I think you've made your point, if you will, not that you're trying to make a point, but like, I get it. Like you are so suffering, so lethal. And I can't, I really wanted to believe maybe I deluded, I think I deluded myself that that would be it, that you would never actually have such a serious attempt or, or even die because that caused so much pain that we explored, you know, and with your partner and, um, and then yet you moved to Texas for a time. You were still struggling with suicidality and you moved to Texas for a time and then again, overdosed and again, nearly died. And I remember, I actually, if I, to be honest, and again, you and I've talked about it. I was, I was angry that time. You, you know, <laughs> yep. You know that. I, part of me was like, you or me? Or I was mean. I was like, are you kidding me? Like, you're going to do this again? Mm-hmm. Um, and again, we're talking about this now uh, because we've talked about yes, it a lot. We're good. This is not new. Yeah. We were not at our best. Oh, you were absolutely. suffering horrifically. Yeah. I was just at the end of my rope and just, you know, and I was for the, I think for the first time, really, really upset with you and just like, oh yeah, completely overwhelmed at the end of my rope. Mm -hmm. What was that like from your side? Horrible. Absolutely horrible. Uh, I think it's important to go back a little bit though to the first marathon I ran because do you agree yeah okay <laughs> because well, um, we are both runners we got to talk running we, we had to weave in running somewhere we do but that's why I brought this so I would remember I'm holding Alexi Pappas's book I was planning a lot to try and die by suicide at that point because I wasn't in a relationship anymore and I thought I could go run this race, boom, finally run my marathon, check that off the list, and then not book a flight back. No one will know. Totally fine. And you knew that. And so I really wanted you to sign my book because my book was really important to me. It still is. And you said, I'll sign it when you get back. And I said, no, sign it now. <laughs> And you're like, okay, I'll sign it now, but I will also, or was it you or me? One of us said, and we'll sign it when I get back. Mm -hmm. I said that. Okay. And that, as well as my best friend Tori coming with me, were the reasons I came back. It was because I was like, well, Craig has to sign my book. So so I can't. Craig has to sign my book. Mm -hmm. And you did. I did. You did. I was reading it right before this. I said, good job for coming home. Did you? No, I don't know. <laughs> Wait, hold on. I, probably what I meant was good job for not dying. Probably. Um, I don't know where it's at. That doesn't matter. Yeah. Anyway, wait. Isn't it, to me, that's so fascinating. And I hear this a lot with people I work with that, you know, so often in life, it's the little things. It's the teeny 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 little things that make the difference and mm-hmm. you know i didn't i was hoping that would make a difference but when i said you know i won't finish signing your book until you come back mm-hmm. from california and i know you're alive and safe but yeah that actually helped it helped a lot yeah. that was i was like well we have to finish it <laughs> it says alexandria part two <laughs> part two <laughs> you are stronger oh wait your handwriting 
you are stronger and oh, stronger and more resilient than you can imagine. I see this fight in you. I see the grace and power, and I have faith in you, Dr. H. Oh. So cute. Yeah, that's also true. Anyway, so that was beginning of May, and then middle of May is when I moved back to Austin, and that was when it was coming up on the anniversary of my marriage that was no longer a marriage and I called you the day before. No, I called you three days before. And you didn't answer. I called you the next day. You didn't answer. And then I called you the next day. So the day before our anniversary. And you answered. And you said one of the most hurtful things I could ever imagine you saying. And. What was it? Something about being a burden. I think it was something along the... This is probably not exactly it because I recognize that. It's very emotional. Probably don't remember it properly. But it was something along the lines of, like, you're burdening me just like you do to everyone else. Something like that. Do you remember what you said? Mm -mm. I remember the feeling. I remember exactly... I was in Crested Butte. I remember exactly where I was on the street, Mm -hmm. like, outside talking to you on the phone. And I remember feeling completely overwhelmed by you and what was happening. I I don't know if I use the word burdened, but yeah. I, I can, to be Burn, honest. It was burning me out. You were oh, burning me out just like you do to everyone else. That's what that's, it was. That's, you're right. And that's I what I said. And I specifically you're, remember you saying just like you do to everyone else because I was like, oh my God. Yep. That's what I said. Yeah. yeah. And then at 12.30 a.m., I did the deed and six. Six or seven hours later, I was found. Mm. Yeah. How much of that near fatal attempt was driven by anger, um, vengeance, you know, wanting? Because as you said, I I'd said something really hurtful to you when I said, "Yeah, you're burning me out like you do to everybody else." I I'm can't I can't imagine that there wasn't some part of you that was like. All right, I'll show you. Like I'll, uh, I will take care of that. You know, but in, in a way, in a kind of an aggressive, angry way. I definitely texted you in an aggressive, angry way before I did it, but I think it more so was. I I lost my dog. I lost my partner. I lost my job due to disability stuff. I lost my house. I had nothing except for my car and donations from friends to like help me pay for food and couches to sleep on every so often and then our anniversary was just a huge reminder of everything that was going wrong and so I think a large majority of it was like I I don't have anything and I'm losing the people around me because I was in two relationships at the time and both of them had ended And it caused a lot of splits in my relationships. And so being alone and then also just not having resources to take care of myself, I was just like, I'm done. Mm -hmm. And then talking to you, it was more like just the final straw. Like, okay, this confirms it. Like, I, if anything in the world, the one person who... I can trust to be honest with me about who I am as a person 
and whether or not I should stay, because that's why I had been calling you, just basically told me to get out of here. And so it was just like a confirmation of, okay, this is the right thing to do. So. I'm sorry. Me too. <laughs> Didn't go well either way. No. found you survive barely you're hospitalized they start you on lithium and you come back to Colorado Mm -hmm. and you and I had some really intense sessions and my memory was I'd be curious your your my memory was in my recognition that you were burning me out that I I I needed to put up better boundaries I needed Mm -hmm. to be very because for example I've been wanting you to go to DBT for a long time and you had been adamantly refusing so when you came back to Colorado I said I want to keep seeing you but a condition of you continuing in treatment with me is you have to do a DBT program Mm -hmm. and Kicking and screaming, you did it. <laughs> I, I did. Oh, right, you were not kicking. Not and this time. <laughs> okay, you agreed. But it, it was a little hard. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about your journey with DBT. What's been helpful? What's been transformative? You know, where are you now compared to where you were pre-DBT? Um, I'm going to start with adding to why I started going to DBT yeah. after so long of being like, mm-mm. Because I think a lot of the reason I didn't want to go to DBT was a lack of understanding because I think when you have been in so many inpatient facilities as I have, I mean, five suicide attempts and eating disorder stuff and OCD stuff, um, you get like that weird, like very surface level DBT of like, just count rocks and you'll feel better. (laughs) And I was like, this is stupid. I don't want to do this. And also a bit of that, a bit of attachment issues of like, I, I am too scared to leave you. Like if, if this means that I see less of you and you abandon me, then I don't want to do it. And then when I was in the hospital in Austin, my dad, I don't know how he would have done this, but he was like, well, you're not leaving the hospital until you're signed up for therapy and DBT. And I was like, I am an adult. You can't, you can't do that. He's like, I just won't come pick you up. And I was like, again, an adult. And at that point I was like, I've hurt my dad so incredibly bad. The only reason he's being this pushy is because he cares about me and loves me and wants me to be okay. Um, so I was already planning on doing some form of DBT, just couldn't do the one they had in Austin because I was moving to Missouri at that point. Then I came back and was like, well, I can't, I can't lie to my dad either and say I'm going. And so it ended up working out because you wanted me to go. And that was kind of, that was, that is an agreement of our relationship. And also it brings peace to my family, which I absolutely owe them after what they walked in on. But then starting DBT with Kelly, who was on the podcast before, uh, <laughs> um, has been really great. 
she knows this, but every week I show up and I don't want to be there (laughs) because it's two hours and it feels like so much. And at the same time, as we were mentioning before, I am so, so much better at recognizing, okay, I'm having emotions right now. I am not thinking clearly. Like this is the equivalent to driving drunk for me. Like my brain is drunk and it's not functioning. And so I have recognized that either I need to go find something else to do and like shut my phone off for a while or really anything until I've calmed down and then I can problem solve or text whoever or call whoever but just understanding ways to manage those emotions effectively at the time until I'm back at baseline that's been really nice and also working on judgment stuff What's your relationship with suicidality now? I I mean, I don't think about it very much. It's not, and I think when I do think about it, I just text you and say I need ketamine, (laughs) and then we're good to go after that. That's been pretty true. Like when you've reached out to me in the last few months with any suicidality, which has not been that often, Uh -uh. right? Then we do ketamine, and then you're good. Yeah, then I'm fine. I had two occurrences recently i feel like i'm using the wrong words here that had to do with suicide and i mentioned this because i think it has to do with how i interact with that now the first one was someone i love very much had a person very special and close to them die by suicide and this was years ago but he took me on a walk and showed me the last place he ever saw her and Now, when I go running, occasionally I'll stop by that place and I'll talk to her. Because to see that someone that I love lost her tells me how much she meant to the world and she didn't even know it. And she was a runner and we could have gone on runs together and I was sad and she was sad and I could have been sad with her instead of her being gone. And I feel like I was very much in a place previously where I was like, I I think I've said this to you. I don't understand why we have suicide prevention. If people want to die, they should just die. Why do we care? We're selfish for trying to make people stay. But I think now it's more of like we have the opportunity to love so many people around us and be connected by that. And love can look so different in so many ways. Or we can engage in things we love with people around us. Like with her, I could have engaged in loving running with her. And I don't think that's something I thought about. Or like engaged in being sad with her, which I think is another type of love. And then recently, I had another really close friend whose mom has been struggling a lot. And her mom attempted recently. And when I found out, I just started sobbing because I felt like I understood, at least from my standpoint, what she may have been feeling 
I'm not her, so I can't say for certain, but I just am familiar with how bad of a place you must be in to do that. And again, it comes back to like, there's so many things we could do together that could be so fun. And I want these people to experience relationship just as much as I do. And so I feel like I look at suicidality more as a loss of relationship rather than an escape from life. Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah. You know, as we wrap up here, I was just thinking, I've never run Leadville 100 or Badwater, but I'm thinking, you and I both love running. <laughs> I think in some ways our treatment relationship's been like Badwater or Leadville 100, like just hard, long, beautiful, meaningful, <laughs> filled with times laying on the ground, <laughs> throwing up and moaning. Um, and I was also thinking like, as you know, as we record this today, I do feel like we've gotten to the finish line, not in a way like that everything's healed or all better or, you know, not pretending that, you know, suicidality couldn't come back or self-harm or, but I do feel like there's been such unbelievable progress that we, we have gone a hundred miles over the mountains together. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I really feel like it's made you and us and me better for it and stronger than we knew we could be. I want to thank Alexandria for her courage and vulnerability in telling this story. And I want to thank her for reminding all of us therapists that we need to relentlessly do the hard work of maintaining therapeutic boundaries and checking in with our own reactions and monitoring our countertransference. For when we fall into the seductive quicksand of projective identification, it's our job to be the patient and curious and compassionate adult, to identify what's happened, to explore it, and to lead treatment back to safety.